You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was add 10 gallons? Add 10 gallons. My first thought was we got to put active on Yeah, great. Trucks on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems at a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of business. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by ActiGel 208. ActiGel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, ActiGel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, ActiGel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let ActiGel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at ActiGel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L.com. All right, everybody, welcome into episode five of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Uh, today on the show, we have Matt Wilbanks, who is the technical service representative for Bootsy Cement. He's going to be on the call talking about all things that you would think he'd be talking about, uh, mixed designs, cement-related activities. Um, and then he also went to went through the CIM program at Middle Tennessee State University uh, with your boys Paul and Joey. So they'll be talking about that as well. Uh, speaking about Paul and Joey, we have them on the line here to talk a little concrete before we bring in Matt. How's it going today? It's great. College football kicks off with the SEC this week, so I'm in a phenomenal mood. <laughs> Joey, I, I imagine you're the same. Yeah, I'm happy to have real football back in my life instead of second grade football. <laughs> <laughs> Arkansas's got a new quarterback. They they do. They do. Um, new quarterback comes with new hopes that will soon be dashed in a couple weeks, and I'll just uh, <laughs> I'll just be rooting for the SEC. Like a good, uh, like a good Arkansas fan would. I'm just, you know, whatever team's playing in ACC school, I'm rooting for the SEC school team. That's that's how it works. Yeah, I can relate. As a Tennessee fan, there comes to a point in the season where you're just happy, or you just hope everybody has a good time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I'm just glad we have Will Banks on the call today, so I can give him some uh, some love about being a Tennessee fan. Because from an Alabama standpoint, it's been a, a pretty good ten or eleven years now. Yeah. Five been more than 5,000 days since the <laughs> University of Tennessee beat the University of Alabama in football. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, un- until we get him on the line here, because I'm sure you'll rib him a little bit about Tennessee football, but uh, let's talk about what's going on in the concrete industry. Um, make a point not to be political on this podcast. That's not what this is about, but... Um, you know, if we're building a border wall, you might as well make it out of concrete because if you're going to do something, do it right. And uh, I, I came across an article not too long ago about how Holcomb is dispatching volumetric mixer trucks to build the, the latest 45-mile section of border wall along the Arizona 
Mexican border. Um, and by using the volumetric trucks dramatically boosts their payload and how many loads they're able to, to get done or, or to pour in a day. Um, whereas before they were typically limited to about, uh, eight as a max. Now with volumetric trucks, they're doing 20 to 25 yards. Yards. A day. Yep. Yeah. Doing the footers for these. Uh, yes, sir. Hell yeah. Yep. So, uh, they're, they're using two, uh, two different, uh, Holcomb trucks. Um, both models are, are accompanied by a, uh, a cat 390 and, um, they're just, they're just out there getting the job done. They have 12 yard aggregate bins on the trucks and, uh, and that leads to 120% increase to the standard payload. And yeah, so, I mean, it was pretty cut and dry, but, um, because we had Mason Garino on the show, uh, you know, about a month or so back and, uh, with all the information that he was able to share on the volumetric trucks that he uses, um, and the pros and cons of that, as opposed to your, your, uh, traditional, traditional setup with just a mixer truck. I figured I'd bring that into the fold and let everybody know that, the there are certainly, uh, some positives and pros of using the volumetric mixer trucks, especially when you're out literally in the middle of the desert. Well, regardless of politics, if you like or dislike the construction of the border wall, we should all be in favor of our government doing something that wisely spends our tax dollars. So yeah. instead of paying all these people to be at this border wall, working on this construction project and moving nine yards worth of concrete at a time uh, per day, now we're uh, you know three times that. So the efficiencies there make me smile, uh, regardless of what you think about that wall itself. And Joey, you got a lot of experience with these volumetric trucks. Uh, what do you see as the main benefits down there uh, in these remote areas for these guys using these volumetric trucks? No, I think you nailed it. Just being in a remote area and not having old concrete to work with when you get on site. There's no telling where they, I mean, potentially you could put up a portable plant and have it there and, you know, supply concrete out of there. But you're talking what was the length of that that section of wall? Like 45 miles? Is that what you said? Yeah. So you could have a plant, or you'd either move the plant or have multiple plants. So, but the the costs that you would incur doing that are pretty are pretty up there. So, metered concrete is a no brainer in a situation like that. And you can, I've always liked metered concrete trucks anyway because you can adjust the adjust the mix in the middle of the load. I mean, with a with a regular mixture truck, it's you know hit or miss. You've only got what was sent from the plant and a tank of water to work with. And that's basically what you have to adjust the mix with. And of course, just dumping water into the mix is never going to be that great for, for in the benefit. But, you know, with the metered, the metered trucks, you just have them all lined up there. You have them sit out in that Arizona heat all day. I imagine they would cover them or something like that to keep them from baking up too much, but just have them covered up and just have them lined up ready to go. And you wouldn't have to worry about old concrete and you got your fresh, fresh mix. And, uh, I, I was thinking too, I wonder if the federal government has a stringent spec on a footer mix or if it's just like all the other footer mixes we encounter where it's the cheapest materials imaginable and they just dump them in the ground and hope they harden up to spec. <laughs> yeah. Well, if anyone does have a stringent spec on it, you would imagine it would be our, our federal government. But to your point about covering the trucks up in the heat, the pictures associated with the article, they're all at nighttime. Oh, uh, yeah. For for obvious reasons. Yep. First time we did a job in Arizona, 
it was July in Phoenix, and I, I think the temperature that afternoon was going to be like 115 or something crazy. Mm-hmm. And so they said, all right, meet us at the job site at like 4:30 a.m. You know, we're used to getting up at that time to travel and work and stuff. And the ready mix guys listening to this aren't balking at 4:30 a.m. job site times. But it is odd to invite a rep of a new product out to a job site at 4:30 a.m. Mm-hmm. That, that's not always normal. So it did catch us off guard, but we were ready. We said, all right, let's go out there. It's 4.30 a.m. We got there, and the first truck showed up on site 5 a.m. We said, hey, you know, this is a residential port. This wasn't anything crazy. We said, why are we doing 30 yards at 5 a.m.? Like, what's what's the purpose of this? They said, well, we're not going to pour any concrete after noon today. Yeah. You know, it's going to be way too hot. Well, even at 5 a.m., these trucks were showed up, and, and – uh, on the outside of these Raymix trucks, as the drum was spinning, they had cold water shooting out of these uh, little spigots onto the drum to keep the drum cool. Yeah. Because they knew that at some point that they could not predict that sun was shining so hot on that drum is going to bake that concrete inside of it. So mm-hmm. pretty awesome. Yeah. That was also one of the few instances where if you started early and you quit early you know most of the time you start early and you just quit after dark like you always do it's just that much of a longer day (laughs) (laughs) it was too hot nobody could survive pouring concrete three in the afternoon in phoenix oh yeah i remember like trying to blow a snot rocket out of my nose and my nose gets dry if i don't have humidity inside of me so i tried to blow a snot rocket and it looked like a tarantino film all over the sidewalk it was just <laughs> blood everywhere kill bill volume three yeah it was kill bill on the sidewalk in phoenix when i blew my nose <laughs> <laughs> that happened to you when we went to world of concrete in vegas the first time too as soon as you landed oh, yeah. on, as you landed, you didn't oh, make it out of the airport yeah that's it uh, anytime i get west of the mississippi river and the humidity drops i get nosebleeds at least two to three times that week so i've been on a project down in florida this is actually in st petersburg florida and this didn't happen like last week but it did happen earlier this year and i want to share it because there's another fascinating project that went off so they built this new pier down there and and the pier actually was like already existing like the structure was already existing but what they wanted to do was at the end of this pier they wanted to widen it and then at the end of it they wanted to build a massive uh like mixed use facility it's like a five-story thing on the end of a pier which is kind of interesting but what they didn't tell you the the normal people like the concrete guys we're going to find this part interesting is the fact that like the fourth floor i mean the elevated deck was 36 inches thick the fifth floor 30 inches thick i mean just massive massive spans of concrete and the issue with the pier is that you're not going to have a bunch of supporting columns all over the place so they are having to use like massive cantilever effects to keep this thing uh, stable and solid, keep it from you know, tipping over and having some support. But all that's good when it's in place. But you're not just setting this thing down in place. This is cast in place. So they're not showing up and these uh, perfectly balanced cantilever effects are helping these 36-inch uh, elevated decks stay up. So, so how are you going to get this thing in place? Well, in a normal construction, you know, we would have a sub base of some kind, you know, whether you got the earth or you need to, you need to set, you know, grade it off and, and pack it and tamp it. And you, you get your sub base. If you need to pour, you know, your footers or whatever you need to do to, to give yourself a solid ground slab. Well, you can't do that here. You're out in the middle of the water and said, all right, so what are we going to do? So, oh, we'll just uh, use the pier or, or some columns on the pier 
All right, got another problem. This pier was built cheap. And there was an initiative to build it cheap <laughs> back in the day because nobody thought they were going to put a massive mixed-use facility on it. Yeah. So the issue was, is you know, as we see in typical high-rise construction, that you would use a jack, you know, a, a jack stand to hold up. You'd have several of these jack stands all over the place, hundreds of these things that are keeping these elevated slabs elevated uh, until the concrete cures and you get enough columns poured and, and things done. Well, here in this facility, you have one elevator column. And you have one stair column. So there's not a lot of things to support it in the interim until you can get the the three columns that are going to go from the stairs to the elevator until you can get those poured and all the ones that are transversing that poured. You can't hold up this deck. You can't hold it up with the traditional jack stands because the pier wasn't strong enough to take uh, those small points of impact, Right. those loads. So they had to come up with another idea. So what did they do? They took a bunch of H-beams and they made a steel grid in, running right through the base of this building. So they were going to wait till the very last minute to put up any walls because on the base of this thing, they've got this uh, this H-grid running. And the H-grid, they're using these steel beams to actually support the jack stands on these beams. So I thought it was pretty neat. I give a shout out to the companies that were a part of it. It was a uh, Shankska USA building and McLaren engineering. And they decided these steel framing supports uh, were going to be placed right on the Marine deck, uh, right over the new permanent concrete piles. Uh, that way they could minimize the steel that was needed because you're right on top of the new piles. Uh, but it also greatly expanded the real estate that you could actually put these jacks to support the elevated decks. Cause you weren't going to pour, uh, 500 piles so that you could put these jacks in. You got to have another weight. So the mm -hmm. fact that they thought, you know what, we can put in new piles onto the existing pier and then place a grid of steel beams all over the place on top of these new piles. Uh, that'll give us enough real estate to put these jacks and elevate these beams. I thought that was a really innovative uh, solution to what was a complex problem. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty amazing. What did the article mention why they needed decks that thick, that high? Like, were they putting like a pool deck or something up there or what? Why in the world would you? You know, it, it didn't say in this because the uh, the article is really about how they were even able to. Right. Okay, I got you. So it didn't really cover like what these things were for necessarily. Um, but, you know, most of the pores took place at night, which you were just talking about yeah. uh, in Arizona. Same thing because it was so hot during the day because this was earlier in the summer uh, down in Florida. Uh, it would just for like one deck placement, you know, and we're used to this one going on these big job sites, but for people that aren't uh, always on these slabs, you'd have 80 guys at one time. They used 77 different concrete trucks and every deck took about 800 yards of concrete. Mm -hmm. So not, you know, you're not, a, we're not talking about a massive hotel type thing here, but, or uh, a, not a huge, huge thing, but big enough that 800 yards fit on a single deck. Uh, but it was 36 inches thick. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, it's going to take a bunch of yards here. Well, and that's 800 yards too, but I wonder how far they had to pump it. Uh, yeah, it shows the pump trucks here. It, it was pumping at least 100 feet because they couldn't get the trucks out onto the pier. Right, that's what the pier thinking. was 100 feet long. So you're pumping it at least 100 feet long ways, and then, of course, then you know, your vertical, uh, what you had to do there. But it was, it was pretty wild. It was pretty wild to see the photos of this thing. And we'll, we'll put a link in the description uh, for this article, but it's wild to see it. Uh, it's clearly a concrete building going up, but with only two shafts, one for a stairwell, one for an elevator. 
and you can tell they're going to pour some elevated decks. But then you look at the bottom and it's just steel everywhere. But, yeah. it, but it's purposely gridded so that you can uh, support these elevated slabs. That's pretty wild. It's got to be a heck of a mix too. Be pumping on, pumping so pumping so many feet horizontally, then up vertically, and then it's a thirty-something inch thick slab. Essentially, that's a that's probably pretty wild mix design. A lot of heat. Yeah, a lot of heat in Florida in the summer, and you know they say they they estimate that they actually saved uh, over a million dollars by doing it with all the steel rather than going through and basically building a brand new pier or uh, or reinforcing the marine deck uh, on that pier if they had gone through and just did did a massive renovation of that pier it would have cost them a million dollars more than what they chose to do with this innovative approach Mm. pretty cool well i found an article and this was pretty interesting to me because i don't spend a lot of time on the west coast so i didn't really know about uh, cement being imported or any of that, uh, things like that. But I found an article was from Sacramento from a local news station about how bagged concrete was having, there was a shortage of it. And this was back in late August. So the effects of COVID uh, from China were really, the effects were really being felt, you know, later into the summer while we were, I think we were having our peak uh you know the peak deaths and cases and everything like that back in the spring well construction and you know maybe some of those supply chains were really being affected in late in summer and into the late summer uh he said it was just really hard to find bagged concrete in like Lowe's and your hardware stores around there and that was when i really learned that a lot of cement was being imported from china and like I said, which was pretty interesting to me because I didn't didn't know that. I figured cement, we just made it here. And I figured if I didn't know it, there got to be some a few other guys that didn't know it over on the East Coast because I don't really hear of that over on the East Coast where we're at. You know, we have plenty of cement manufacturers, you know, scattered along, you know, the east of the Mississippi here. And uh, they were saying, too, that. Uh, secondary cementitious materials were also being affected because they import those too, like slag and fly ash. And fly ash is getting hard to come by around here anyway um, because of the you know the shutdown of some coal production. So that was pretty interesting. I didn't know what your guys' thoughts are on you know importation of you know concrete materials. I to me I always thought that that was just like a totally domestic product but it come to find out that cement and other things are being imported from overseas yeah i mean as, as a capitalist i am glad that we can get uh, you know affordable raw materials in from wherever we're going to get it in as long as you know make spec and everything and over on the west coast uh, you got a lot of competition you got the domestic producers you've got uh, asian producers so not just the guys in china but also japan and you've got mexico so when you've got all these different people that are able to produce it and send it in, you actually get a really low-cost cement out in southwest United States as compared to really anywhere else, but especially up here in the East Coast. Uh, but here in the East Coast, got a lot of good limestone, man. You got a lot of good materials uh, to feed, and you got a lot of to make good clinker and produce a, a really good cement. You don't really have that much out in the southwest United States, so they're going to import it from somewhere. So where are they going to import it from? You know the next state over well is that going to cost you 120 dollars a ton or you can import it from china it's going to cost you 60 dollars a ton 75 dollars a ton uh, to get it 
uh, you know, from the port over to your plant. So, you know, it, it is pretty wild that we that it was more cost effective to send cement all the way across the Pacific Ocean uh, than it is to get it from your neighboring state. In the East Coast, they in the Gulf area, they've uh, transported in uh, Mexico. Uh, I know there's a time where uh, some other European economies were really struggling, like Greece. Yeah, I was really just about to mention that. And uh, they had cement producing capabilities, and they were looking to sell it anywhere dirt cheap. Uh, I mean, just we'll, yeah. we'll we'll send it to you. You just pay shipping. You know, it was like one of those as seen on TV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We'll give you the second load. But wait, there's more. The second load is, is absolutely free. You just pay shipping in <laughs> Yeah, they were flooding that Houston market with Greek cement there for a while, weren't they? Yeah, they tried to. Apparently, I, I just need to. Apparently, I just need to get out more. <laughs> <laughs> but that is wild, just to think, and just think. You know, we deal a lot with these producers and their natural sand versus manufactured sand costs and the price difference there. That is that's un that's unreal to me how it is cheaper to barge or to ship cement over the ocean in a boat and have it delivered in California for cheaper than you know what it could be produced and shipped internally. But like you said, Paul, they just don't have the materials that we do in the East to make good cement. So it makes sense, but it's still mind blowing to me because I never I, we never think about that over here. No, you're exactly right, and. The other interesting thing I'd like to know is, uh, did our current administration, I know we're not trying to be political, but it, did our current relationship, geopolitical relationship with China, any of the tariffs that we had on them, you, you combine that with the COVID pandemic, or have has cement been affected, the importation from China, has that been affected at all? I, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good and, question. You know, and with the COVID thing, they may not have been producing anything at all over there factories could have been shut down i mean we're seeing that in india at active mm-hmm. minerals where we work you know, we sell other products into india quite a bit and those plants in J- jakarta just hasn't they just never show back up to work right. we just hadn't sold these guys mm-hmm. anything and it's like well the government shut the plant down like <laughs> don't know what to tell you yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll buy from you as soon as we're allowed to make something All right yeah, I, I did see, I think I saw a couple of reports pop up in my search when I was looking around at this article before we started recording, and I kind of ran out of time, but um, I'm sure there is a report on how those tariffs have affected importation of goods, especially cement and other construction materials. It had to have had some kind of effect. I mean, it's something like that just doesn't go over without the consequences. All right, homework. Next time, next episode, we're gonna we're gonna bring back some facts mm-hmm. on how our geopolitical situation is affecting yeah. the cement market. <laughs> we'll have a, we'll have a special episode, a COVID nineteen roundup, six months <laughs> after fourteen days to flatten the curve. We're still, <laughs> and here's how it's gone so far. What can we expect leading up to and after the presidential election? Dance oh, all along. Yeah. Line of not being. <laughs> Nobody imposed. We just imposed it on ourselves because we know, know this is going to go off the rails. We <laughs> turn it into that kind of place. We usually go off the rails at least once an episode anyway, so might as well. Well, the world, the world is flat, man. I mean, it's it's hard not to be uh, political. I mean, because things that are happening in, in Greece, like as as you mentioned, affect the construction market here. Where there's a there's a political aspect to that. Obviously, anything related to COVID nineteen and and you know the restrictions and and things there, you know, related to that, that's going to have a, a political 
a political element to it. The fact that fly ash is hard to come by, there's a political element to that too. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, that's a great point. And you know, we had Jim Casilio on a couple episodes ago, and he was talking. We we're talking a lot about the COVID nineteen, how the government, and state government, of Pennsylvania handled that and made things really difficult on those guys. And Joe, you got firsthand experience with that. Uh, being a Tennessee resident, you had trouble uh, getting into Chicago uh, last minute on a project. Yeah, uh, we were talking. We were actually talking with those guys this morning in a meeting uh, with our uh, our friends in Chicago, and how when we had our last round of in field testing with those guys, and I couldn't I couldn't show up because they had their quarantine rules on Tennessee residents. So the the political landscape certainly does have an effect on you know all of us and everything we do. And I think just because I don't watch the news, I think I just get my news updates from you guys. But then I go to try to do something like that, and it hits me right in the face. (laughs) 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 Because I didn't keep up with it, and I was about to just get on a plane to Chicago the next day and just go about my business like nothing happened. And then turns out I could have been fined up to $100 to $300 a day if I'd have been stopped for any amount of reasons. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and then as far as the – political aspect of this show um fines for not violating any laws um that we can stop there <laughs> <laughs> we will we will not pursue that talking point any further <laughs> well, I, when we uh oh man i got all kind of talking points paul's about to break out his best show. alex jones impersonation <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yep. This is a concrete show, and uh, we have uh, concrete related guests, and uh, I'm going to steer this thing back in that direction. <laughs> I'm, dude, I'm this close to doing Alex Jones impersonation. We got to cut it off. <laughs> I'm going to start railing on some people. No, no, no. We're going to bring in our guest. Uh, we got Matt Wilbanks coming on the show. He's going to talk with Paul uh, primarily. Joe and I will chime in every once in a while, but. Uh, we'll get we'll get his uh, viewpoint on the cement industry and his day-to-day dealings, being the technical service rep for Bootsy Cement. So, uh, without any further ado, we're going to welcome in Matt Wilbanks. Well, and I tell you, Wilbanks, uh, we have two rules: no cursing, no politics, and I had a third rule not to be outnumbered by Balls fans on this podcast. And I've broken that rule for you, sir. That's how much I think it is. Oh, oh. <laughs> uh, I would say I'm honored, but, uh, you know, I, I, what I really want to do is build a big wall around the state of Alabama and then not let any football teams out ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only way you'll ever have a chance of winning a national championship. Oh, I was fired. Mm. Mm. You all can notice that the Arkansas fan has remained silent uh, the entire time. If you guys want to talk about baseball or track and field, I'm your guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 94 men's basketball, and then after that, it's just been baseball and track and field. Mm -hmm. Luckily, we don't have any Vandy fans on here. All they can talk about is baseball. But we're smart. We're smart. We play baseball. Talk about their med school. <laughs> yeah. How they have the exact same amount of fans going to football games this year as they did last year. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, really can't 
about was concrete. Uh, Will Banks, thank you so much for joining us today, man. Really happy to have you. And you're the first person we've had as a guest who was a CIM graduate from MTSU. Uh, so tell the people, uh, when did you get out of MTSU? Uh, what year did you get out of there? And what was your route to get where you are now in the cement industry? Um, see, I graduated in 2013 from TSU. Um, I, I studied, uh, obviously concrete industry management, um, CIM program. We were, we were classmates with you and Joey. Um, I went, uh, I was concrete contracting and from there I went into ready mix, uh, quality control in Little Rock, Arkansas. I was, uh, default. I was the uh, QC manager because I was the QC department. Um, so one man operation, we did about six plants. Um, and that was all me. I did that for a while. Then, um, then I went to an onsite job in South Texas where, uh, uh, we put up a, a temporary plant as a portable. Um, I was there, coordinated the portable delivery, set up the plant, got mobilized. Um, once the job started kicking off, um, I brought in another guy who was, uh, had experience with operations and that, and I uh, was kind of his number two. Uh, then when the job started slowing down, how uh, anybody familiar with uh, construction projects, they kind of start slow, then they get real busy, and they kind of it gets slow again near the end. Um, uh, they didn't need as many resources there, so they moved me to quality control in uh, Houston, Texas. And I was there for two years. Um, learned a lot. Um, and then I uh, went from there to a uh, lab manager uh, for Texas Concrete in Austin. And then from there, uh, I moved to uh, Bootsy uh, Unichem in uh, Chattanooga as a uh, technical services representative on the cement side. Um, had a lot of luck along my uh, career as far as the people I got to work for and with. Um, learned a lot from uh, a lot of different people. Um, I still learn new stuff every day. Um, that's the exciting part about this this, uh, this industry. Is uh, every concrete pour is the same, but everyone's different, and, and you learn something new every single day. Well, who do you point to right now as one of your mentors? Oh, uh, my mentors. Um, probably. Um, one of my best mentors was uh, Sean Westerham um, in uh, Houston, Texas. Um, a legend in the industry down there. Um, really, uh, really took a personal uh, interest in teaching me a lot of things. Um, show me how he—he he was very precise, uh, perfectionist almost. But he would show me how to do it the way he wanted it done, and then he would demand that it was done exactly that way. Um, but so it started off, he'd show me something I'd never seen before. This is how to do it. This is everything. And then, uh, then I would do it and I'd have to send it to him and he'd show me all the places I messed up on it. And that went on for a while. And then it got to where he wasn't showing me as many mistakes and making me redo it, um, as often. And, uh, I got to where I, I was doing some of the stuff right. Sometimes it was, uh, it was, it was great. Yeah. We get that a lot. Uh, with our side, not so much the concrete side, but uh, when it's writing reports, uh, writing notes to upper management and stuff, and you know, I guess stuff just completely crossed out all the time. <laughs> like, do not say it like this ever for the rest of your life. <laughs> like, 
All right, my bad. <laughs> Being honest here, they're all, yeah, I was a little too honest. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna dial that back a little bit. Um, but in the concrete world, uh, I imagine you have these guys that are not just showing you how to write reports, but they're probably showing you how to make concrete. I'm really interested in the way that you view concrete. But we talk a lot, you and I do, just on the side, whether it's text or over the phone about different designs and different things we're seeing challenges in the industry and your approach to designing new mix designs with your experience how do you go about that that's uh that's a big part of what, what sean taught me was the way he he designed the uh the mixes um for a mixed design um first and foremost um you got to do um trial batches in the lab that's the most important is to understand that you have to do that because the best looking mix design on paper might not actually work. I've seen some mixes that on paper, it was so beautiful and wonderful and you wanted to frame it. And then when you actually batched it, it, it wasn't that great. And then I've seen mixes that look like nothing special on paper, but somehow with those constituents and the way they went together, it, it was awesome. Um, I've seen the 5,000 PSI mix that was that was a lot better than a 6,000. Like it was easier to work. It was easier to place. It actually broke higher than the 6,000, which was weird because we were on the job and, and the uh, contractor was asking, can, can we use, just use that 5,000 instead of the six? It's even breaking better. Um, so you, you kind of have to start with your, uh, your minimum cement content. If that's if that's a thing, if not, then then you would look at your uh, desired PSI. Um, now, I tell you, familiarity with the local materials is key. Um, if you have if you can have that, that's a great place to start. If you don't, then you just have to use your past knowledge and experience and and kind of start from there. And that's why the lab trial batches are so important, because that you start learning. Like you wanted, I, I don't know how we're starting from scratch or, or what, but you basically you got cement, rock, sand, and water. Basically, the cement is the glue, and when you mix it with water, it reacts and it becomes glue. And basically, you're gluing together little rocks to make a big rock. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the, the basis of, of what we're doing. Um, so the uh, when you do something like that. You know, people will ask, like, how much, you know, how much of a sack content do I need to make a 5,000 mix? Or I need, uh, you know, 3,250 in 24 hours. Somebody wants to pull some cable. And, you know, you take a guess and then you either go up or down on your cement based on, you know, if, if you blow it out of the water and if you needed, you know, 3,250 in, in 24 hours or 3,500 in 24 hours and you got 4,500, you should probably lean that mix out a little bit because you're, you're way over design. However, if you only got 2,750, then, you know, you don't have enough in there and you need to, uh, you need to increase your cementitious content. Um, so those are, it, it's, it's such an art form and it has to be local. Like it's, it's, I don't know, art form, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a crazy science as well, in like, like, you took the words out of my mouth. You took really. I was gonna follow up with with all the science that we were taught, and and all the experience we have. You noticed that it's an art form. I think guys just have the ability to 
you know, with experience sort of massage things and add a little here and take a little away there and give you the mud that you need for that job. Yeah. Um, I, I, I really learned a lot in the lab playing with it when I was a lab manager. Um, cause I was just doing mixes all day, Des- redesigning the mix book, um, trying them out. Simple thing like a one mix, it wasn't working out real well. Some things were, it just wasn't coming out well in the lab. And I added 20 pounds of rock and the slump went up two inches. The brakes went better. Like I mean, 20 pounds of rock one way or the other. When you're talking, we're, we're talking like 1800 pounds of rock. Like what is 20 pounds? It's on the percentage wise. It's, it's low. It's, it's almost nothing. You know? <laughs> you know, two extra shovelful. Whoopity. It makes, it can make a huge difference. Um, and, and once you, you experience that and you see, how just playing with it. And it matters because of your gradation, your gradations are in your rocks and on your sand and the way those, those interact together, uh, man, it's a lot of moving parts. Um, and there's not a lot of guys that, uh, that are actual mixed design guys. Um, that can, they can adjust them. Well, that's one of the conversations you and I had is how rare, one of your kind is like i'm not trying to blow smoke up your butt but (laughs) there aren't that many guys out there who are as technical as you are that can start from scratch and design a mix from nothing and into something with such a wide array of possibilities whether they want a non-shrinking grout or they want an scc concrete or they want to do a mass pour like you know just off the top of your head with your experience oh these are going to be the basic tenets of the designs. And then I need to formulate off of that and give this customer exactly what they want. And it might be a little trial and error, but at the end of the day, you're using the science, a little bit of art to create something usable and good. I liken it a lot to baking. There's a science to baking and there are certain ingredients you need and certain proportions that you're probably going to use. But at the end of the day, some people are really good at it and some people are terrible. But it, <laughs> but you can make something wonderful, and you can make high quality stuff and low quality stuff. And when you know you get to know a guy like Wilbanks here, who has that experience, and he's a high quality baker. You know, he's one of these guys that would have a Food Network show if people care about concrete. <laughs> about that. <laughs> so it's interesting to hear you talk about the mix designs, and you say, look, you can have all the head knowledge. But at the end of the day, it's about experience. You have to get into the lab. And here's what I find fascinating about it. When we were at MTSU together, they told us the job they preferred that we take is with quality control. So when you get it out, the perfect job for our degree is to go into QC. And you're one of the few guys that listened to that and went and did it. What made you go down that path of of quality control? What made you take that job and think that was the right way to go? It was... uh... It, it was a, it was a, the, the, the best chance to learn and be better. Um, I actually, uh, there, there was a, there was a boss and I, I had, I had several interviews, talked to different companies and, uh, I had, a, I had a couple offers. Um, and, and I, I looked at the one and it was, uh, it was my first boss, uh, shout out to, uh, Dan Davis. Um, double D is what we called him because he always, he'd always sign his name. Uh, capital D, capital D for his initials. Um, and I, I'm I'm in the interview with him, and I'm talking to him, and and the thought that got me was, 
you know, this guy's going to be really hard on me. And I'm like, I can tell, like as a boss, sometimes I'm going to hate him, but this guy's going to make me better. He's going to challenge me in a lot of great ways. And, and it's going it, to, that's what I need to do. Um, so that, that was the thing is I, I thought long-term, um, a lot of people didn't want to leave Tennessee. Um, I didn't want to leave Tennessee either, but that's not where the opportunities were. So I looked at the opportunity, where are the opportunities and where are the long-term opportunities? How is this going to make me grow? Um, I did the same thing when I left, uh, Arkansas, which was a good place, um, to go to South Texas for that, uh, onsite job was I looked at it and, and I was like, there's a great opportunity to further my knowledge is you don't want to be a guy. There's two types of guys, there's a guy with 10 years of experience and a guy with one year of experience, 10 times, you know, you don't want to be the latter. Is that yours or did you take that from somewhere? Cause I'm certainly swiping it from you. <laughs> no, I, uh, I heard that from somewhere else that that's not mine. Um, but, uh, I was lucky enough that someone, uh, I, I came across that quote, um, I think when I was still in college or, or just after, and, and I, I took it and I was like, man, that's good. I want to, I want to make sure not to be that guy. And so I was like, I, I just, I just thought, let's take this next move and, and that's going to further develop me and, and I'll learn a lot. Man, it was painful. I mean, onsite jobs are miserable if anybody's done them. I mean, it is it is 90 hours a week. Um, it is, you know, you're, some days you sit there and because you're on site, you're at the mercy of the uh, contractor and you'll be there for 16 hours to pour 80 yards. I mean, that is a long day. And um, but then there's, you know, other days that it's just going. But I did that. Houston was was huge. I mean, we were doing, you know, one point five to two million yards a year on uh, 18 plants all over Houston. Um, so, so I kept making moves that that were very challenging. Um, the first one was the QC. And uh, and I just kind of led with that. The one in actually when I was on site. That was actually operations. That was a year and a half stint in the operations side. And that made me a better quality control person was having that experience. Um, and then now I'm probably mostly sales uh, or customer service um, and, and technical support. Um, but having those experiences in the other areas, um, I, I think, was just incredibly valuable. Yeah, I absolutely agree. The interesting thing about your journey is you went uh, through all those different avenues of ready mix, and then now you're on the cement side. What differences do you see being on the cement side versus on the ready mix side? The cement side is uh, it's more of a marathon. Um, we make a lot of cement, and then we ship it to a lot of places, um, and and then ready mix every day is a sprint. Um, so when a fire pops up in ready mix, you jump in your truck and you take off right across town. You know, wheelbarrow flying out of the back of the pickup because, you know, you're just you're hauling butt right across town to get over there to save that 10 yards. That, that, that might be, you know, somebody's trying to reject or or a plant. Something's wrong at that plant and they're batching it wrong. And so you got to get over there. And you got to fix it right away. Um, so you're chasing a lot of little fires every day. Um, and the cement side, it's more of uh, if something goes wrong, man, it's really wrong. 
you know, a, a problem would be huge. Um, but it's it's not chasing a lot of little fires. It's it, it's so it's more of a marathon pace. Um, but you get to work. That's from the technical side, from the people side, I think now I work with concrete guys like ready mix guy is my customer now whereas before my customer was a concrete contractor and so it's it's great to be able to have my customer as somebody i used to do that job i used to be in your i used to walk in your shoes so i can relate with to them um a lot whereas before and we can both tell stories about how those concrete contractors, they go cowboy all the time. And you're like, man, I don't know what those guys are doing. <laughs> you know, they're, they're like, like, everybody like, knows it's going to rain. No, no, give us one. Give us one. <laughs> oh, uh, all right. Um, here's one. I, I really don't know what we, what we charge for stuff. I've always been handled that stuff, so I don't know prices. But I, I estimate. So I'm on this job, and it's a temperature spec, and it's real close. It's a hot day in summer. And uh, I recommend, I'm like, I recommend we go with two bags of ice per yard. And the guy's like, I don't know. I think I can make it with one bag of ice. I'm like, man, if you miss the temperature spec, we're going to bill you for that load of concrete. And then we're going to have to batch another one with the two bags. And we're going to bill you for that. And then you're going to have to wait another 45 minutes to get here. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll risk it. And I mean, we were charging something like 100 bucks a yard for the concrete and like five bucks a bag for ice. So this guy's, he's gambling like a thousand dollars to try and win 50. And you know, essentially I'm like, this doesn't make sense. You know, it's like, dude, it's like the end of the day on a Friday, dude, get the two bags. We'll pour this thing out. And let's call it a weekend. And it gets there and he makes temperature by one degree. And this guy's so happy. He's like, yeah, I knew it. I knew I could do it. And he's just, he's so proud of himself. And I'm, and I'm like, man, that is just the mindset of those guys. Is they're just so aggressive. And man, it work, when it works for them, it's great. I mean, that's how we get stuff built. You can't, I mean, you, you got to push the limit. I get it. But sometimes, like if he would have missed it, you know, he'd have lost all that money and he'd have just been, you know, so <laughs> it hurt him. But that's, that's those guys. <laughs> that's great, man. So you get out of school. You actually go into the QC side like they suggest. All right, let's uh, put you back at MTSU now, today, 2020, and you're talking to the current class. Uh, they're juniors, seniors coming up. They're trying to think about what they're going to do. What do you tell them to do? Think long-term. Instead of thinking short-term, think long-term. Um, you know, uh, where do you want to be in five years? Try to think about something like that, and then take jobs that will get you there. If all you think about is like the best job today, then then that might not help you get where you want to be long term. Um, if you have a QC opportunity, I would definitely take it. It allows you to learn so much about ReadyMix because you interact with all the facets of it and you interact with contractors every day on job sites and you get to experience that. Um, I had some opportunities to uh, potentially go and work in the contracting side. So if you if you go into QC um, in concrete, you can transition from there into operations in concrete, into sales in concrete, into uh, contracting. You can move from from that over to contracting. Um, you can move over to uh, 
a lot of different things. It's it really it it really furthers your education in a way that uh, that opens up more doors. It gives you the opportunity to continue to learn, continue to develop, and and exposes you to a lot of different uh, areas. So I would say that. And number one thing for a graduate is understand you don't know everything, and and uh, um, try to learn something new every day. Take that mindset to work with you for your first year. Every single day when you get to work, say that to yourself before you get out of your truck is I'm going to try and learn one new thing today. So you've mentioned several times the word mindset and Mm -hmm. you and I, when we talk, just me and you, we talk about that a lot and how our mindsets are pretty similar. And one of the ways that ours is similar is we say, think like the owner, not like the employee. So when you're making your decisions about the business or even your personal life, you need to think like an owner. Um, where does that mindset come for you? Where did that come from? How did you instill that in yourself? I don't know. Um, I, it's partly developed. Um, I got a lot of a lot of of, of my uh, discipline and drive came from wrestling. Um, that 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 sport taught me a lot. Um, the ownership mindset, I will say my first boss, Dan Davis, really pushed that. Um, he he ran, he was the area manager, and I was the QC, and I answered directly to him. He viewed it as his company. He ran it like like it was his and took real ownership, um, and that inspired me to do the same. Is I took personal responsibility for every yard of concrete we batched, um, and uh, the, the head – uh, took it. If we were batching concrete, I was, I was working is I might not be there because well, I couldn't be everywhere, but I had my phone with me. And, and that, that was, uh, something that, uh, that he taught, which was, which was really good. Yeah. Well, I think we were all the same. We got a college with whatever degrees we had and we went and took entry level jobs, making $40,000 a year and worked our tails off low man on the totem pole and you just work and you work to work. I mean, Joey had it worse than all of us. All right. So I don't want to stay here and take his uh, oppressive thunder away from him. But I bring that up because I want to say, I think there's a mindset in today's culture where people are looking to be victims. They're looking to say how they've got it worse. And I think people want instant gratitude, instant gratification. They want the house their parents had at 45 but they wanted at 25 and they're wondering when they get out of school why don't they get that right away why don't they have that instead of thinking as you said will banks you don't know everything and when you get out take the job that's the hard job but learn something new every day and on the way opportunities open up and you'll get good mentors and you'll get good bosses and you take those opportunities and you work really hard when you get them are you seeing a similar mindset as you're moving around from Little Rock to Houston to Austin to Chattanooga and you're all these places and you're working hard? Do you see uh, this victim mentality or the people that you're working with taking the same opportunity as you are working hard? I, I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, there's always been lazy people, man. I mean, you know, some some people, you know, do that. Um, some people. Some people don't see what I did. Um, yeah, I, I, I've gone into the tunnel and have to. It's demoralizing because you have to dig all the material off of the belt 
because the belt stopped up and then they turn the belt back on and then you have to shovel all of that material right back onto the belt that you just shoveled it off of. Like that's, that's tough. Um, shoveling out underneath the plant and because you can't stand up. So you're either bending down at your back or then you just kneel down on your knees to shovel. But yeah, I've done that standing there backing up trucks all day long. Um, yeah. I mean, I think if you, you have to do that stuff and they used to tell me, um oh it'll be good for you like doing a night pour right after working all day or something go home take a take a three-hour nap and then be a night it'll be good for you and and i i just knew that that meant i'm, I'm gonna hate this but long term it's gonna teach me a lot of lessons and part of it is once you get through that you you actually have some credibility um if you've done those hard things and when you're talking to people on a job they recognize the people that have done those things and know what it takes so when you start talking about you know well it takes this people know that you know what you're talking about and they you know oh well, yeah we can do that but it means we can't work you know on after we'll have to get out of work at noon on friday if we're going to do this pour on saturday because of the resources it'll take and 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 it's good um it teaches you lessons um Teaches you some humility. Um, if you don't learn that humility, you will learn it. I mean, concrete will whoop your butt. The day you think you got it all figured out, all of a sudden it's doing different things all day and you don't know why or how. And and you just look like a fool because your customer is like, why is my concrete all messed up? And you're just looking at it like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know? And he's like, well, it's your job to know. <laughs> like, I, I know. That's... <laughs> I'd be uh, I'd be interested to find out. I don't know if we could even look this information up anywhere, but I'd be interested to know uh, the CIM graduates that uh, either started in the industry, started in the concrete industry, if they got out, how long they stayed in the industry and then switched to another one, or and how many of us are still in the industry after X amount of years, because you know the three of us were in it. Uh, Will Banks, what year did you graduate? I, I finally graduated in 13. Okay. And uh, I was 2010. Paul, you were, was you spring of 2010? 2010, yep. Yeah. And so we've been in it, uh, you know, seven to 10 years and with no sign of ever getting out of it. And I know guys and with CIM degrees and gotten out, and I never really bothered to ask them or wonder why they got out. But I would, I don't know, it was just a thought I just had. I'd be curious to know why people get out of the industry when it's rewarded us so well. And one other thing, yeah, you're giving me PTSD about shoveling material off the belt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's demoralizing. You're talking about portable plants, and Joey's about to start crying over there. <laughs> oh, dude, yeah. Flat, the Vietnam uh, Fortunate Son was playing in my head. Uh, it was It was rough. Shoveling out cement pigs with garbage bags wrapped around your legs, those kind of days. Um, yeah, I know them very, very well. Uh, another thing I wanted to ask you, and we we're staying on portable plants. You said you used to set them up. That's what I used to do, too, my old job. Was um, when you're setting up a plant, was crane day your most favorite day? Crane day was a good day. That was my favorite day because yeah. it was just like putting together a giant erector set and you had the cranes and you're just directing the crane to set everything up but that was that was my favorite day 
that was that was like the easiest day for me. I think it's why it was my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> my least favorite day was clean out the back house day. That's yes. that, that's, that, that's always you, you're not really in concrete until you've cleaned out a back house. Yeah. Cleaning out a back house and uh, running those wires to the portable plant. Those those big mixer uh, motor <laughs> wires that are about as big as your arm. And you're having to weave those through around, you know, the, all the bracing and all the frame of that of that uh, plant. Yeah. The day after crane day was like one of the worst days. <laughs> but it, it's rewarding. Um, I remember when, when it first went up and uh, I was talking to one of my old bosses and he was he mentioned that, you know, he said, cherish this is not ever, some people work their whole career and never put up a plant. Um, they never get to see uh, a new plant built and, and go go through watching it, uh, you know, be put up from from pouring the foundations to all this stuff. So it was really uh, it was really a great thing. Um, like I said, I've I've had a lot of hard work. I don't want to pretend like I haven't, but I also definitely want to want to focus on I've had a lot of good luck, a lot of opportunities that came my way. Um, and, and I'm very grateful for the opportunities that I've had. Yeah, but you, you earned a lot of those. You know, they say luck is where hard work and opportunity meet, right? So, you know, you work hard and those opportunities come to you. One of the hardest things to me when I'm on a job site is when the concrete's coming and all of a sudden a truck shows up and the air is through the roof. You know, like for no reason whatsoever, the air just shot through the roof. You're on that job site, Wilbanks. Uh, What's your checklist? What do you do to solve the air problem? Well, everything affects air. But the first first thing I'm going to look at with that truck is, is it an air mix or not an air mix? And if it's an air mix, then first thing I do is check my admix, how much air is actually going in. Is, it, is before you change your dosage, you want to make sure that your mechanicals are working properly. Is Did you overdose this on accident? Did something malfunction with the bottle? Is is it is it mechanical? Because if it's a mechanical issue, what you can do is you can hand dose your concrete. If it's not, then you need to start adjusting your dosage rate on your chemical. And so and then you just start troubleshooting from there. Um, if your air is really high, then those are usually the things you start you start looking at um, to, to try and get that air down. Uh, next thing you might want to look at is uh, if you have a super plasticizer. Some high range water reducers can uh, can lead to an increase in air um, to a certain amount. Um, but usually that's something that you found out in your lab and your trial batches beforehand. So you should know what kind of range you can expect this mix to be in. But, yeah, that's that's, that's where I'd start. And then, you know, you do what you can. You, usually the big problems with air is, is not enough air. You're trying to build it. Uh, usually you're trying to kill it. it, it uh, add some fly ash. Well, the flat <laughs> is usually what I'm suspect suspicious of. Got a little too much carbon, latest load of ash. Typically, what what can happen with the uh, is if you get some fly ash with a uh, uh, high amounts of carbon in it, it'll be really hard to build air. And where I can see is what you start doing is you start having to increase your air dosage, increase your air dosage, and so you've got a really high air dosage, and then all of a sudden uh, you get some fly ash in there with lower amount of carbon or a loss of ignition, depending on how technical you want to get. And, uh, and then your air shoots through the roof. And that, that's an, that's a, 
if you've got an air an air mix with the fly ash in there and all of a sudden shows up at the job really high air that's one of the first things i'm looking at is after the mechanical the next thing i think is did we dose it really high because we had some high carbon and now all of a sudden we got lower carbon um because i've seen that happen another trick that i've seen guys do that you're not supposed to do if you have just a little bit higher air than you need or want or, ha- or need to have i've seen guys take a scoop of concrete and instead of just like you know just shoveling it into the air pot they would slam that crap down into the air pot and try to and try to beat the air out of it and that would get them by for at least you know another load or two and then they'd have to start making some adjustments but that was like that was like troubleshooting high air content (laughs) (laughs) that's an incorrect testing method and we do not support that (laughs) <laughs> no, we do not. But I was just telling a war story that I may or may not have observed sometime in my past on an undisclosed location. Oh, a <laughs> bunch of lab guys out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, Wilbank sent me a good picture of a guy looking at throwing trash off a roof, but not just off a roof. He had a ladder, uh, <laughs> an extension ladder that was extended like 10 feet off the roof. And they had laid something across the ladder so they could wheel the wheelbarrow across it. And he was <laughs> dumping it off the end of this ladder that was just hanging out over a building. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you asked for the craziest thing I'd ever seen on a job site. And so I thought for a moment, and I was like, oh, yeah, that was it. Um, so I sent you the picture. Um, that story sets up as I was uh, I was proctoring for ACI. Um a field test one, that's where you get your field test where you, you slump and, and air. And so, uh, the, you know, we're going through that at undisclosed location. So we're doing this and, and there was some construction going on on the roof. And all of a sudden we hear a crash and we look over and we had seen that, that someone had taken that wheelbarrow and wheeled it off like a plank, like a ladder hanging off a building. And they walk off the ladder and then dump it off. And I was like, I was shocked. I, was like, I can't believe that just happened. Like, where is OSHA? Like, this is so many levels. This is completely awful. And then, so we're talking about it, and we're like, man, you know, he got goes back, and and we're like, I can't believe that happened, or whatever. And then he comes out to do it again, and that's when I pulled my phone out and I took a picture. I was like, oh, this is just what this guy's doing all day. <laughs> is uh, is that? I was like, this is it was wild, man. It was it was like a three story building and he was dumping it into a dumpster. There was nothing marked off the dumpster. Like hopefully he didn't. No one walked underneath him. And <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully he didn't fall. I mean, there, there's just so many things about that. It was- so speaking of technology, what technology are you seeing on the cement side that's really primed to take off? I see uh, technology is going to. Uh, it's going to keep developing. I see paperless batch tickets. Um, that's coming. Um, people are just going to have uh, tablets and email the batch tickets, um, tracking trucks live on batch tickets. Uh, cement technology has been developing for years, uh, attempting to get more efficient and more environmentally friendly. Um, that's where a lot of our uh, efforts are going in those those areas is uh, energy efficiency uh, and environmentally um, to be, uh, uh, really to be responsible stewards of, uh, of the industry in that, in that sense. 
Are you familiar with any of the undertakings that Bootsy's taken specifically? The newer plants, as in newer, built in the last 20 or so years, or the plants that have been refitted um, have, have become more efficient in as far as the energy use. Um, we've reduced energy usages, I think, 20 to 25 percent. Um, one of them is uh, in the uh, uh, kiln system is uh, uh, staggered, is instead of just having one very long kiln, I've been able to shorten the kiln, which saves energy because there's a preheating mechanism in the tower. As they bring the raw feed into a, a tower and it, it, it heats up as stages as it drops down the tower headed towards the kiln and that's that's a way of using your kiln heat off off of the kiln to right up the tower so as the raw as the raw material is is brought up to the top of the tower and then fed through uh different stages uh before it reaches the kiln it's a preheating mechanism um that allows us to be far more efficient in uh in our energy that's a development um from the last I don't know, that might not be that old, uh, you know, might be 40 years old or, or, or so. I'm not sure when the exact change happened, um, but that's what some of the newer technologies and plants are. It allows us to be a lot more um, efficient. Yeah, that and reusing kiln dust, you know, about a decade ago became a big that, um, The future is 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 coming in, in type 1L cement. Um, we're, we're working with uh, DOTs to get that approved. Um, it's a blended cement it allows us to reduce the, uh, uh, clinker content of cements behaves a lot more like a one, two, uh, Canada is really pushing that right now. Um, Europe has been using it for years with a lot of great success. Um, America's is, uh, not really leading in that, that aspect. Um, but we're, we're following, um, as a, as, as a country and as, as the DOTs, uh, are, are continuing to accept it. Um, you're going to see it uh, used more and more broadly, um, and that that's going to be a good thing. It's uh, it's, a, it's a high quality product um, that really works. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about Portland limestone cement on here a few times, and if it can reduce uh, your clinker content by 10%, you know, theoretically, you're reducing your carbon emissions by up to 10%. And if you can do that then you have the ability to reduce all carbon emissions everywhere by up to 0.5%, which doesn't sound like a lot just sitting here talking about percentages. But we went through a study uh, a couple episodes ago where we talked about how much they could reduce the emissions if they changed every roadway in the whole world and all this stuff. And the answer was 0.5%. And, and that was hailed as like a huge thing. Well, if we can do that just by switching to 1L cement, and then it's no worse for wear for anybody else. It seems like a pretty simple switch, but people aren't making that switch. It's not happening. What hurdles do you see that you got to overcome? Um, well, uh, your guest a few episodes ago was, was talking about the, uh, the inbred elephants analogy, you know, and then the, uh, uh, the, the industry is the construction industry in, in, in the United States is uh it's kind of slow to adopt new things um for for whatever reason somebody gets burned one time on fly ash and then they hate it forever uh some of those instances it's it's a matter of educating people um it's a matter of getting approval um you know 
everyone wants to go with something that works, but no one wants to try it on their job sometimes. Um, so it, it's just a, uh, there's a lot of reasons that it hasn't caught on. Um, I don't know why, uh, why we're still using um, cylinders on jobs. You know, they've got those little sensors that you put in the decks now um, and, uh, you know, check it on your phone app and that, that'll tell you based from time. But see, our, a couple episodes ago, we talked about just that. And he was saying mm-hmm. that the security method isn't come maturity. along. Uh, no, which is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. But he's saying yeah. it has to come along. There's not that correlation. You can't do one to one in any way. He doesn't think it's reliable. Are you thinking differently? I think the maturity meters, um, yeah, they're, I think they're good once you establish a curve. Uh, you can't just throw a maturity meter and, and say, oh, great. But you have to you have to do your mixed curves. You have to uh, I've done them where you, you put your maturity meters and then you break you break your cylinder and you look at the maturity meter and you have to do multiple mixes to get your curves and you get your data points down. And so, you know, how to how to measure is at this maturity, you're going to get this PSI and you, you establish that baseline. And yes, you're going to have to you're going to have to do some checking along the way in order to adjust your baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think maturity meters, uh, have a lot of promise and I think they're, uh, the more you use them, um, and the better they're going to be. And the more you correlate them, the more accurate they'll be. Same thing with a moisture probe. Um, you know, if you, if you run a moisture probe batch and concrete on your sand, if you, if you set it one time and then run off and never calibrate it again, that moisture probe is not accurate. But if you calibrate that moisture probe every single day, they can get very accurate. And there's a, uh, actually, uh, Command Alcon has a uh, moisture system. I forget the exact words for that software, but you plug it in every day. Once you get about 30 data points, that system stays actually really good. And the, the problem you always run into, or in the older probes, was if your loader man runs you out of sand, and then your probe, you have to recalibrate the entire probe because it throws the probe off. And what this this system, it has a, a newer probe and a better software. It doesn't. So um, I think I think moisture probes are, are a great tool. Um, more people are adopting them. I like to see that. Uh, the maturity meters, I think, are a great tool. Um, w- when properly used and properly calibrated. Uh, yeah, I, I think they're great. Um, I think uh, I think they're, they're, they're good things moving forward. Uh, you know, we continue to develop as an industry. Um, sometimes not changing overnight is a good thing is we don't just jump to some new flashy thing and then find out it doesn't work is we have a slower transition. And so we test it out, we work the bugs out and and over time and and you have to prove it. Now, sometimes you're slow to adopt a new thing and, and you lost some time. And sometimes you save yourself some pain from working the bugs out. Um, there's a lot of, uh, uh, different systems, uh, tracking slump on mixer trucks, adding water on the way to the job, tracking slump, tracking air, different companies have different systems on that. I believe that's part of the future in the technology. Well, I agree with you on the maturity meters, embedding them in the decks or wherever you're putting them and monitoring them. You, you can do it from your phone and everybody across the entire job site from the owners to the techs and, and everybody in between. Can see exactly what that deck's doing, and everybody's good. 
But Jim had a different idea. He was saying that that's not good. So I wish he was here to tell me why we're wrong because I trust that guy, but I disagree with him heavily on that. And, uh, and I didn't have enough like good information to argue with him on our last podcast or two podcasts ago. <laughs> so now here you are agreeing with me. So I like you a lot for that. I, I've, I've done those curves. I've built those. Um, uh, it's a lot of hard work. You have to break the cylinder exactly on the right times uh, to, cor- to get your correlation down. You record your data and then break your cylinder, and, and you have to do that. And it's, it's very labor-intensive. Uh, but you end up with getting an, establishing an accurate curve. And I've known companies that, that use those maturity meters, and that let them know when they could pull their cables um, the next day. So for that aspect, I've seen it work. Um, I've calibrated the trucks on those. Uh, it's you add a little bit of water, you pull another slump, and, you, and you're training the uh, the software to be able to read the slump off of the RPM. Some of those are, are, are getting getting a lot more accurate too. I think it's, it's exciting. Hey, Wilbanks, thanks for joining us, man. It's a pleasure hey, talking to you. So we'll have you on again. Yeah, yeah, we'll have you on again. Yeah, excellent. Y'all have a good weekend. All right, bud. You too, man. See you. All right, and that's going to do it for episode five. One final thanks to Matt Wilbanks. Thanks for being on the show here. Um, And a big thank you to everyone out there who makes up our listenership. We've grown in uh, popularity Uh, each and every episode. We're getting more and more downloads, and we certainly appreciate that uh, from you, the listener. Uh, If you would, give us a a review on uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends about us. Uh, And until then, uh, we'll see you back here in a few weeks for Episode 6.